Have you had a good Lord's Day today? Praise God. We rejoice in those that came to know the Lord as their Savior this morning and folks getting right with the Lord and we praise God for all of that. And now we come to the evening meeting. I love the Lord's Day evening. And I love to be in a church where they still believe all day is the Lord's Day. And they don't give God a nod for a few minutes and then go right on their way. And so I want to thank you, church, for your faithfulness, being here tonight, and looking forward to what God has to say to us. Open the Word of God with me, would you please? Let's go back to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter number 5. And we'll read this amazing passage of Scripture together, all of it again. And then zero in on a handful of these powerful statements that our Lord gives. This, of course, is the beginning of the most famous sermon, the first recorded sermon of the Lord Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, interestingly enough, this morning in my devotional reading of Scripture, I'm further ahead in Matthew now, I was at the Olivet Discourse on the other end of the Gospel record. So one of the final recorded sermons of our Lord Jesus and like bookends on all of the, the teachings of Christ. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is amazing for so many reasons. One, because it really introduces all of the great themes that the Lord is going to then develop all through His ministry. So it's almost as if He spreads the table and says, all right, we're going to talk about a number of things in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. And then in His teaching and preaching ministry, He goes back and elaborates on every one of those. Uh, in the same way, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Really, he, he introduces everything he's going to talk about in the sermon in verse number 3 down to verse number 11 in this passage we call the Beatitudes. And then it is as if he goes back and articulates more and more about every one of them so that he is just simply enlarging on these simple but profound statements that he gives in what we now call the Beatitudes. If I had to title Jesus' sermon, I would call it the Blessing Sermon. And here's why. Because he begins with blessed, 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 blessed. I Look, at, at our house growing up, if mama said it once, we were supposed to listen. Isn't that right, ladies? If she said it twice, we were really supposed to listen. And if she had to say it three times, it was too late to listen. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When Jesus says something repeatedly, it is for emphasis. It's not because he forgot he said it. It's because he doesn't want us to forget that he said it. And so we turn our attention again to Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Dear Lord, let me be in that number. I don't want to just be in the crowd. I want to be one of the disciples. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye. When men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets 
which were before you. I must tell you that those verses are much easier to read than they are to live. In fact, <laughs> full disclosure, if I were in the original audience, I would have been a little puzzled. How many of you ever heard a preacher get up and start and you were a little puzzled? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. And sometimes even preachers get a little puzzled when they begin, you know, trying to get to a certain place. But Jesus knew exactly where he was going. These people were waiting on somebody to come along and say, all right, let's get us an army and everybody get your sword. We're going to march on Rome. We're going to take this country back. That's what they were waiting on. And Jesus stands up and says, God bless all you people who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and blessed are the peacemakers. Hold up just a minute. This is, this is the opposite of what they expected to hear. You know why that is? Because the Lord doesn't do his work the way the world does its work. We say he's backwards. Look, please. He's never backwards. We're backwards. Sin messes everything up. God's way is always the right way. And what the Lord Jesus is articulating to that original audience and then to all of us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, look please, is that if you follow God's way, you find everything God has for you. I don't know about you. I, I don't want to live and die and miss what God has for me. Now look, I'm saved. How many of you are glad to be saved tonight? Are you glad to be saved? That means we're going to heaven someday. But listen to me. God designed the Christian life not for someday. God designed it for today. You don't have to wait till you die and go to heaven to enter into what God has for you. God has something for you right now. But you miss it. And I miss it. If we do not follow God's way. And so, the God of the Bible is a God of divine order. Can we agree on that? Yes or no? Is a God of perfect progression. There's a progression to the Beatitudes. I hope you'll see it over the next few nights as we study them together. But notice something very simple. It's the most obvious thing. Everybody look at verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 because they all follow the exact same pattern. Watch, please. You have to get the first part of the verse before you get to the last part of the verse. That's profound, isn't it? But it is profound. Look at it carefully, please. Because in the first part of the verse, there's a principle, and in the last part of the verse, there's a promise, and you can't get to the promise except going through the principle. Watch, please. You don't get the blessing of the Lord and all that God has for you unless you are willing to let God be thorough with you. And I wonder, are you willing to let God be thorough with you? You want just enough church to be a church person? You want just enough Jesus to miss hell? You want just enough religion for people to say, he's a good person, that's a nice family? Or do you really want to let God be God in your life? Do you want to let the Lord Jesus Christ do the deep work in you that will make you through and through all that God saved you for? I must tell you, these, these sayings that are so beautiful to read are heart-searching statements. I mean, look, the sword of the Spirit cuts deeply, and I'm not preaching at you. Heaven help us. I'm, I'm preaching to me. I'm, I'm just sharing with you what the Spirit of God is dealing with me about. God wants to work in all of our lives if we will let Him. So there's a little word I want you to write down. Would you write the word down, maybe in the margin of your Bible, next to these Beatitudes? It's just the little word, through. 
God works through everything. And I want to speak to you for a few moments on this little subject tonight, going through with God. Will you go through with God? My experience and observation has been that most Christians come to know Jesus as their Savior. They begin to take steps of obedience. They get baptized. They join the church. They, they get a Bible. They, they start doing Christian things. They're taking steps, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, and then there is that day. It's different in everybody's life, but there is that day when the Lord prompts them about a certain area and they say, you know, Lord, I think that's about far enough. And for the first time, instead of taking the next step, they draw a line in the sand and they say, you know, I'm not going to hell now, and I'm saved, and life's better than it used to be, and, and God's been good to us, and we sure are blessed, and I think that's about far enough. Now, they would never articulate that with their words, but that's exactly what they do with their lives. And then you meet them in about 25 years, and you say, well, give me your testimony. And they say, oh, brother, I've been a Christian for 40 years. I've been on the journey with Jesus for 40 years. Great. Tell me about that. And then when they start really talking about their spiritual experience, you find out they really haven't been on a journey for 40 years. They've been on a journey for about 15 years ago because 25 years ago they stopped following. And I wonder, what kind of Christian are you going to be? Are you going to go through with God? Do you see, look at the verses just for a moment. I was meditating on this the other day devotionally, and this is what captured my attention. Look at verse number three. You have to go through poverty of spirit to get to the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse number four. You have to go through the morning to get to the comfort. Verse five, you've got to go through meekness to get to the inheritance. You've, you've got to go through the hunger and thirst after righteousness if you want to be filled. You've got to go through mercy to get mercy. You, you've got to go through purity of heart to see God. You've, you've got to go through the peacemaking to be known as a child of God. You've got to go through the persecution if you want to rejoice in all the reward on the other side. Look, please, you have to be willing to go through with God. For a few moments, let's concentrate on just a couple of these. And let's start here where we left off. We, we've studied this poverty of spirit in verse number 3. It reminds me of Paul saying, having nothing yet possessing all things. That's what we are. We're a bunch of nothing, but we have everything because we got Jesus. Now that's just a starting point. Read on. Look at verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn. Time out. I thought this was supposed to be an encouraging meeting. So far, we've said you've got to be poor and you've got to mourn. Boy, that sounds happy, doesn't it? That's what Jesus said. Don't argue with me. It's not my sermon. It's his sermon. And Jesus said, look at verse number four, blessed, happy, joyful, doubly happy and glad are they that mourn. How is that possible? Well, look at it because you have to go through the mourning to get to the divine comfort. We're an entertainment crazy world. And churches are no different. We want some preacher to stand up and keep us awake for 30 minutes, tell a few jokes, keep everybody laughing. The sad reality is laughter never brought revival. And entertainment never brought conviction. 
See, we say we want the revival. We, we say we want the spiritual awakening. We say we want God to be thorough with us, but are we really willing to go through the morning to get to the divine comfort that only Christ can bring? Or do we want to soothe our conscience? Do we want to just put a little Band-Aid on the wound of our soul? Do, do we want to just dress up our, our sinful hearts enough so that people will think we are all right? Or are we willing to go through with God and let God be thorough with us? You can tell a lot about a people by what makes them glad, sad, and mad. And I say to you, we perhaps should examine, number one, why we don't mourn, and number two, what we do mourn over. It's funny, but our world has changed. I mean, it's been so much now about laughter and, and everybody just trying to be happy. By the way, do you know who the most miserable people on earth are? People trying to be happy. And I'm going to tell you why. Because you don't get happiness by psyching yourself up in the morning and trying to be joyful. You don't get it that way. Joy is not the goal. Joy is the byproduct. You get to the God of all joy, and God will put his joy on the inside of you. So we've got a miserable world trying to be happy. Maybe, maybe what we need to do is stop just a minute and ask ourselves if perhaps there is something we should mourn over so that we can know what true joy really is. Whatever happened to the mourner's bench in churches? I'm in places now where, where they say, well, you know, we, we don't really give much invitation anymore and we don't really expect anybody to come and, and repent of their sin and deal with things publicly. Why not? What's happened to us that we, we've lost our brokenness? We've, we've lost our tears. Look, friends, we must mourn over our own sin we fuss over the sins of others, but we do not mourn over our own sins. We want the president to get right with God and all the politicians to clean up their act. We want sinners to stop acting like sinners, but we have not dealt with our own sins. And that's why James wrote later in the New Testament and it said, let your laughter be turned to mourning hmm. and your joy to heaviness. Well, wait a minute. I don't want to mourn. Well, you don't have to mourn forever. Oh, I love this. When you be thorough with your sin, when you stop being hard on everybody else and start getting hard on your own sin and you weep over your own sin and confess your own sin, I love this, then it is God himself who comes and dries your tears and turns the mourning into joy. Look at the verse, the Bible says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that's not some shallow sympathy. That's not just somebody saying, well, bless your heart. That is the comforter coming to you. That is the comfort of Christ. And there is no comfort like the comfort of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when does it come? It comes when we begin to mourn again. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you wept over souls? I mean, personally, when was the last time you wept over a soul? My heart smitten. We had precious souls saved this morning and we rejoice and give God the praise and the glory. But for every soul that comes into a building like this and hears the gospel and is saved, don't you know they represent millions more who will never walk inside a church building, who will never hear a sermon, who will never have that kind of opportunity and they are perishing all around us. And I remember times in my early Christian experience as a boy preacher starting out when I wept through sermons because my heart was so broken for the lost that were, that were perishing everywhere and somewhere God God deliver us. We've become so everlasting professional about our Christianity. We have lost our tears. 
We say we want the blessing, but where is the brokenness? We say we want to see God's comfort in our world, but where is the mourning? Where are the mourners of this church? Are there, is there a mourning ministry in this church? Are there, are there any weepers among us? Is there anybody broken for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls that will go to hell forever? Do you understand? Christ is coming and the world is perishing and sin is, is inflicting its wound and, and the devil is doing his worst. Somebody has to get serious and broken over what God has broken over. If you're going to go through with God, then you're going to have to go through mourning to get to the comfort. There's a second one. Look at verse number five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Write it down, would you please? You have to go through humble submission to the victorious possession. That's what that verse says. You want the inheritance? That's the victorious possession, all right? Here's the way you do it. It's not the world's way either. The world's way is pull yourself up by your bootstraps, make it happen, get it done, stand up, speak out, be somebody, and just take what belongs to you. And Jesus comes along and says, no, look, please, you don't take it, God gives it. And let me tell you who gives it to. Hold on. This is radical. The meek. Our world looks at meekness as weakness. They look at humility as some kind of, of passivity. I say to you, maybe that is why we have seen so little of the blessing of God upon our lives because it has been so much about what we can accomplish instead of what only God can do. See, people expect when you have a revival meeting, somebody's going to blow through town and preach on all the, all the wicked sins of society. Look, I could preach on the sins of society and everybody would say amen. What about the sins of the Spirit? It's easy to sit in a church building like this and talk about all the things we don't do. What about the heirs of our life that are not completely yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Do you know what the word meekness here means? It was the same word, and this is going to humble you. It's the same word that they used in Jesus' day for a domesticated dog. Think about that. For an animal, look please, that has a nature to lunge, to fight, to attack, to devour, to fulfill its greed and, and gratify its own lust, but somehow that dog has come under, oh, don't miss this, that dog somehow has come under the control of another and it now has a new nature and the nature is not to do what it wants to do, but rather to do what the master wants it to do. You want to know what meekness is? Meekness is when God's people stop setting the agenda and living by their ambition, when we stop living by our ideas and what we think is best and saying what's on our mind and giving people a piece of our mind and instead we say, oh God, you're the master and we're the servant. We yield to you and through that humble submission, God gives you the victory you could never have any other way. Moses, meekest man that ever lived. That's what the Bible says. Read Numbers. Meekest man on the earth. Here's what's so ironic about that. When you read the story of Moses, especially the early days, may I suggest to you, Moses was not a meek man. He was an angry man. You remember he killed a guy? How many of you think that doesn't sound meek? Watch this, please. Somewhere, God changed him. People say, well, that's just not my personality. I'm not talking about your personality. I'm talking about spirituality. People say, well, you know, preacher, everybody's got their thing, and that's just the way I am. It may be the way you are, but it's not necessarily the way God wants you to be. And what about in the New Testament? What about the Apostle Paul? Everybody remember Paul? Full of himself. Full of religious pride, which for the record is the worst kind of pride. Arrogant, 
pompous and pious. You know what God did? Humbled him. So much so that he learned that in his own words, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. What's the next one, church? Meekness. <laughs> Almost like God changed him. What about the Lord Jesus? What marked him? You know, it's funny. People want a Christ of their own making. They don't want the Christ of the Bible. They want the Christ that goes into the temple and makes a whip and drives all the money changers out. But they don't want the one that will not lift up his voice in the street and with gentleness and meekness deals tenderly with sinners that stands on the Mount of Olives and looks over Jerusalem and weeps and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Listen to Jesus coming to me. Coming to me, all you that labor to heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am, what church? Meek and lowly at heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. I tell you, you can live under the strain and struggle and stress all of your life and never find rest. But if you get to a place of meekness, God brings you to a place of rest. When you finally wave the white flag to God and say, you have all of me, then God brings to your life a peace and a joy that can be had no other way. Through humble submission to victorious conquering. Paul said, I beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. When we're done this week, I don't want you to know the Beatitudes better. When we're done this week, I want you to know Jesus better. Do you understand what the Beatitudes are? Do you understand what this list really is? It's a beautiful description of the man who spoke them the first time. Who is Christ? He's the meek one. Yielded to the will of the Father and look at every beautiful thing that has come out of it, all of heaven. Every good thing in this world and all the glory in the world to come came out of humble submission. Dear God, put that spirit back in us. I wonder, will you go through with God? It's the only way. Let's add another one. Look at verse number six. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Would you write it down? Through spiritual hunger and thirst into fullness. Are you hungry? I'm not talking about physical things, all right? What do you crave? What is the great passion of your heart right now? At this time in your life, what are you thirsty for? You get people saved. New Christians, as a general rule, are just, they're just passionate after God. They just can't get enough church. They can't get enough Bible. They can't get enough prayer. They, they're just eating it up and drinking it up and, and soaking it in and enjoying it all. And then somewhere we cross the threshold, don't we? I don't know what happens to us. It just becomes kind of old hat, you know. It's, oh, yeah, 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 I'm saved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we go, to, we go to church. What's happened to our passion? How many of you remember when you first got saved? Would you raise your hand? You remember the early days? I remember the early days, Pastor, when God first called me to preach, and I remember those early messages, and they, they were pitiful. They were pitiful. 
and those sweet people put up with them. And <laughs> I'm thinking now, all those grandmas and grandpas that used to hug my neck and say, that was the greatest sermon we've ever heard. They lied. That's what they did. But you know what I remember? I don't remember the sermons. What I remember was something was stirring on the inside of me. And now we can say all the right things, but where's the fire gone? Where's the heart of a Moses that says, show me now thy way that I may know thee. Show me your glory, Lord. That's all I want. Just show me your glory. It's all right. Just hide me there in the cleft of the rock and let me see the hinder parts of your glory. I just want a glimpse of who you are. Where's the heart of a, of a psalmist David, the man after God's own heart that strummed his harp and said, as the heart, as the deer, panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Where is the heart of an apostle Paul who after he'd been saved for 30 years, 30 years of being saved, could still write Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Dear Lord, put the desire back in all of us. Pastors have to stand up and try to pump an audience and prime people to volunteer to do things and plead with folks to do what already ought to be in their heart to do. Look, you let God be thorough with you and nobody have to beg you to do the right thing. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He'll put new passion and desire back in every one of us. It is through that spiritual desire into all the fullness. And I, I just want to tell you tonight, I want to live in the fullness. I don't want to live some, some empty life, and I don't want to live just with enough to eke by for another week. I want to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit of God. I want all of God living in all of me and serving through my life. And watch, please, the only way to have fullness is you have to be hungry. In fact, there's actually an order here. Look at it. In verse 5, you get open. That's what meekness is, wide, open, and submissive. And in verse 6, you get hungry. If you want fullness, then you must get open and you must get hungry. And who is Christ? He is the bread of life. Who is Christ? He is the water of life. Listen to the prodigal say, At daddy's house there is bread enough and to spare. Oh, that some of God's children would get full of God again. I wonder, ma'am, are you a spirit-filled woman? Sir, are you a spirit-filled man? Would anybody that knows you, would the people that live at your house and know you best, would they say you are filled with the Holy Ghost? Would they say that your life overflows with all the beautiful characteristics of Christ? I'll tell you what we need. You want to know why we have a revival meeting? We don't have a revival meeting so a guy like me can preach a handful of sermons and folks nod their head and say we had another nice special meeting. We have a revival meeting so that on the inside God can awaken something in every one of us of fresh passion after Jesus Christ. Look, the pursuit of Christ is not the pursuit of a moment or a year or a season of life. It is the pursuit of all of life and it does not end until we kneel at the nail pierced feet of Jesus Christ in heaven. We must go through this spiritual passion if we want to live in the Spirit's fullness. Let me show you something. You're in Matthew, right? Turn over to Matthew 16 with me for just a minute. I was studying this the other day. Matthew 16, Simon Peter gives his great confession of faith and the Lord commends him for it. Isn't it funny how quickly you can go from spiritual to fleshly? Now, be honest. Come on now. Let's all get real just a minute. How many of you have ever been in church and sang the hymns and said amen and said God bless you, walked right out there and got in your car in the parking lot and got in the flesh? Be honest. Would you raise your hand, please? 
And don't look at me so pious. We've all done it. Preachers do it too. Preach and tell everybody else, be filled with God, and then you get out on the road and some jerk cuts you off and you get ticked off and in the flesh. That's right. Peter did it. Look at Matthew 16. I mean, he's just, he's just been given the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That sounds pretty good, wouldn't you say? And on the heels of that, <laughs> Jesus starts telling him he's going to die and be raised again. Verse 22, Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. <laughs> but he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. How many of you would like Jesus to call you the devil? Somebody said, I don't understand that. At that moment, he was being a mouthpiece for the enemy. I didn't even plan to say this, but let me just throw this one in. Do you understand that the most spiritual person in this church could become the messenger of the devil if you're not guarded? Any one of us at any moment could say something that could grieve the Holy Spirit and hurt the work of God. That's, that's sobering, isn't it? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For, everybody look at the end of verse 23. You ever notice this part? Thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Do you see that word savor? It's a, if I say a savory things. Let's take a survey. How many of you like sweets better? Would you raise your hand? That's my category. How many savory people are out there? Would you raise your hand? Yeah. The sweet and the savory, so the idea, the, the, the salty, that which appeals to the taste. Look at the verse. Look at that word and look at that verse. He looks at Peter and he says, you've gotten a taste for the things of men more than the things of God. Hebrews talks about having tasted the powers of the world to come. Listen to me. When you really get a taste of eternity, time doesn't mean as much to you. When you get a taste of heaven and the glory of God, suddenly all of this doesn't mean near as much. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And at this moment, he was savoring the wrong things. Now don't answer out loud. You've got to answer between you and God. You can't even answer between you and your spouse. It's just you and God right now. You do business with God yourself, all right? Let the Lord be through with you. Go through with God. What do you have an appetite for? What do you love to think on? What do you love to speak about? Uh, what, what do you love to, to, to ponder? What do you love to desire? What do you nurture on the inside? Look, please, what do you crave? Do you remember? Do you remember when Jesus had led that woman at the well to himself and she, she leaves her pot and goes into the city and the disciples come back here in McDonald's hamburgers with them? Remember that? They brought lunch. And they said to Jesus, Lord, here's some meat. And he gave the most interesting answer, didn't he? I have meat to eat that you know not of. I'm going to tell you something. Most of us live such subpar Christianity, we, we, don't, we haven't even gotten a good taste for all God has for us. And when we get to the judgment seat of Christ, the great tragedy is not going to be uh, what, what sin did, it's going to be what sin prevented, what we missed. All the things God wanted to teach us, all the prayers that God wanted to answer, all the things God wanted to use us to accomplish. Do you understand that we are living such, such lower lives when there is such a higher plane? Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Get your spiritual hunger and thirst back. On my way here to this meeting tonight, 
driving that car and trying not to get a speeding ticket on my way here tonight. I was praying through these things, not for you, for me. And I said to the Lord, Lord, ignite my passion again. Make me hungry for God again. Let me be hungry for the Bible. Let me long to pray. Let me thirst for holiness. Let me hunger and crave to know God and to have God's image stamped on my soul. Oh Lord, make me hungry and thirsty, not for something, not just for anything, but for righteousness. Well, Samuel Rutherford, a great man of prayer, wrote this. He said, There is as much in our Lord's pantry as will satisfy all his children. As much wine in his cellar as will quench all their thirst. Hunger on, he wrote, for there is meat in hunger for Christ. Go never from him, but bother him with a dish full of hungry desires till he fill you. Maybe it'd be good if some of God's children, I'm talking about some of the mature saints and brothers and sisters who've been saved a while and been in lots of meetings like this, came back to God as the little child you used to be, as the young convert you started out as, as the new believer you began this journey as, and say to the Lord, Lord, I'm empty, but I don't want to live and die empty. I want to be full of God. Dear Lord, fill me again. And I tell you, through that hunger and thirst, you will enter into God's abundance and sufficiency. One more and I'll stop for tonight. Look at verse 7 because now he turns it inside out. You see, it begins with all just us and God and now suddenly it starts affecting our relationship with man. The Godward becomes manward. What God does in begins to work its way out. Look at verse number 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Do you understand we've all already received mercy? Like, look, the fellow you're listening to right now is a black-hearted, hell-deserving sinner. And if I got what I deserve, I'd be burning in hell right now. And so would you. We'd either be in hell or on our way there. But praise be to Jesus, I'm not there and I'm never going there. Would you like to know why? Mercy. When I say that word, I can hear my grandma say, mercy, mercy, mercy. That's the whole thing. Mercy, mercy, mercy. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Do you understand mercy is the need of every man and it's also the need of every day? Take a breath. That's mercy. Close your eyes. Would you close your eyes a moment? Now open them. Look at me. Sight, that's mercy. 
every good thing God has given and every evil thing He has prevented, every bit of it from start to finish, the sum and circumference of your life is all the mercy of God for time and for eternity. We have all been recipients of the mercy of God. And yet, you know what we do? We withhold that same mercy from others. And Jesus says to these people, you've received it. Now you better start showing it. And then he makes the most amazing statement. Look at it, because remember, the first leads to the second. The, the first leads to the rest, and the first leads to the best. Look, through showing mercy, guess what happens? You receive even more mercy. I was thinking on this today. I don't know theologically exactly how to express this, and, and I don't want to be off kilter, but you know what I think? I got saved as a five-year-old boy. That was, that was 41 years ago now. Five-year-old boy, I came to faith in Christ. I didn't know much, but I knew Jesus was the only Savior, and I wanted to be saved, and I put my faith in Him, and God saved me as a five-year-old boy. It was mercy that God let me live to five. It was mercy that God let me hear the gospel. It was mercy that I received on the day I got saved. But I'm here to tell you, 41 years later, I think I need more of God's mercy today than I did that day. Maybe it's just that I'm becoming more acquainted with how sinful I really am. Maybe it's I'm starting to realize how desperately weak and incapable I am and I realize but for the mercy of God we're sunk, friends. But for the mercy of God we're in trouble. There, there is no hope. There is no future but for the mercy of God. Oh, but praise God that the God of the Bible is the God of great mercy. And God says, you need mercy? How many of you need mercy? Raise your hand, please. You need mercy? I need mercy. You want to know how to get it? You don't have to ask. You don't even have to ask. You understand that? Do you think you've got to beg God to do what God already promised to do? He'll keep showing the mercy if you will begin to show that mercy to other people. One little interesting footnote. Would you look at it? Do you see the word merciful there? Everybody circle the word merciful in your Bible in verse 7. you see it? Blessed are the merciful. Did you know that particular word is only found one other time in the New Testament? It might interest you to know where it is. We'll end here. Go to the book of Hebrews, would you please? Go to the book of better things. It's all about Jesus, you know. You can't get any better than Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. It's a passage that talks about Jesus taking on flesh and blood, becoming one of us without ever ceasing to be God so He could deliver us from the fear of death, so He could deliver us from bondage. Look at verse 16. For verily, Hebrews 2 verse 16, He took not on Him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. <laughs> he called us brethren. That he might be a, what is it church? Oh, praise his holy name a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. Do you understand that Jesus even coming to earth and taking on a body was for this purpose so that he could be merciful to us? This is what has taken me. Do you know when you're most like Jesus? When you're showing mercy. I say again, do you know what these Beatitudes are? This is Christ's character. This is 
the divine nature. This is supernatural. I'm sorry, you can't get this. You can't live this way by trying harder. I know so many people sit in churches and they've tried and tried and tried and prayed and committed and I'm going to do better and then they hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall till finally the devil says, the accuser of the brethren says, see, you're not spiritual enough and so they just stop even trying altogether. Listen to me, Jesus did not give this ideal so that you could try your best to live up to it. He gave this ideal so that you would understand that you have nothing, you are nothing, you can do nothing but Christ is everything and when you let God be thorough with you, God puts this character in your heart. Only Jesus can do that. I was preaching just a few hours from here across state a few years ago for a wonderful church. I was preaching through the little book of Haggai. There's a place we don't go very often. It's only two chapters long. It's an amazing book, though. And I had asked the church, like I've asked you to read the sermon, and I asked the church to read Haggai. And I don't remember which night it was, but an elderly woman came out of the meeting. I was standing in the lobby of the church shaking hands, and I'll never forget it. She was a very fine, well-dressed woman, up in years, very well-dressed, and had her Bible and her Bible study journal and pens. And She said to me, she said, I've been reading Haggai. She said, God's really speaking to me. I said, wonderful. Then she said this to me. This was her way of expressing it. She said, Preacher, I just want you to know. She was an old-time Christian. She said, I just want you to know. I have been praying every day that God would send a Holy Ghost revival. And I said, me too. God bless you, sister. Keep praying that way. She turned. She took about two steps. I can see her right now. She stopped, spun back around, came right back to me before the next person could even step up. She said, could I ask you a question? I said, certainly. She said, that Holy Ghost revival. I said, yes. She said, what does that look like? I opened my mouth to answer her. You know, preachers are supposed to have the answer. Did you know that? I don't even know what I was going to say. Wasn't right, whatever it was, because I didn't really know. And the Holy Ghost checked me. You ever have the Holy Spirit just stop you from saying something and say, ah, ah, ah? I paused and I said to her, that's a great question. Now you think about it. This was a humbling thing. I, I'm an evangelist. We're preaching a revival meeting. We're praying for revival. What's that look like? I'm not sure. And I said to her, will you let me think and pray on that a little bit? She said, yes. I went back to my hotel room that night by myself. Got down beside the bed to pray before I got in bed. I wasn't thinking about her. I wasn't thinking about the question. I started to pray, and the Holy Ghost brought her question to my mind. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I don't know the answer to that. Help me. What does it look like? And I remember that moment. Trying to be weird, I'm just telling you, I remember that conversation with the Lord. He told me. <laughs> what is the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, in the life of a believer? One thing. To conform us to the image of Christ. Until Christ be formed in you. And I remember I said to the Lord, Lord, I don't know. What does that look like? And the Holy Spirit said it looks like Jesus. You want to know what revival looks like? See, people think if you get a crowd, you have revival. No, you... Look, you do know the devil can get a crowd, right? 
And then there's good people. They're really good people. There are people in this church that think because we had a bunch of people come forward this morning and profess faith in Christ. Somebody said, that's revival. No, that's evangelism. That's gospel work that will grow out of the revival. But look, revival is not for lost people. Revival is for saved people. Somebody said, we had wonderful music and we had, we had a wonderful message and we had a great service. That's good. You can have all of that and still not have revival. Let me tell you what revival looks like. The Holy Spirit puts you under the x-ray machine of the Word of God and starts showing you stuff. And it's painful. And then the Holy Spirit takes the sword, this is his scalpel, you see, and starts doing spiritual surgery. If you let him. Oh, you can stop it. Oh, sure you can. Remember, you, you can stop it. Anywhere in the process, you can stop it. But if you say, God, be thorough with me, I'll go through with you. Then the Holy Spirit, watch this, starts cutting out of you everything that doesn't look like Jesus and grafting into you everything that does. You'll know, you'll know you've had revival. I'm not talking collectively, I'm talking about individual. You'll know you've had revival. When you start allowing the Lord to work through all of these circumstances and all of these things in your life to crowd you to Christ and press out of your life everything that doesn't bring Him honor and glory. And I wonder tonight, will you go through with God? Our Father, we thank Thee tonight for the truth of the Word. I just thank You for Jesus. Thank You, Father, for Jesus. And thank you for giving us the sweet Holy Spirit to search us and to show us and to change us. Lord, thank you for loving us where we are, but thank you for not leaving us there. God, awaken thy people. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.